we've learned firsthand what a broken system healthcare is. But I think the good news is that at the end of the day, the health system itself also wants to deliver best-in-class care. And we're not, we don't have to convince people to do that. They just need help in figuring out how to do that. Welcome to Insert Human. This is a show that is not for everyone. It's for seekers, people like you, hopefully, who are searching for solutions to your problems, the world's problems, and everything in between. The conversations to come are going to show you how finding the truth of our humanity is the magic key to solving pretty much anything. Between my monologues, my dialogues with brilliant guests, and your good questions, you're going to learn how to insert human into everything, and in doing so, realize a better life and one day a better world. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Insert Human. Thank you once again for joining me and actually us. And the us today is one of my dearest friends, a guy by the name of Mark Edwards. And I could regale you with stories about how Mark and I would drive around Massachusetts in a Honda Element wearing Nehru jackets, but I'm not going to. Instead, I'm simply going to say that Mark is one of the most compelling people I've ever met. And not only does he have a huge brain, he has a huge heart. And that huge heart has led him in the last, really about 10 years. Opportunity Nation was when exactly, Mark? Yeah, about 11 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been almost 11 years. Mark and I worked together many years ago, but 11 years ago, he started something called Opportunity Nation, which I'll have him explain to you. And then more recently, I guess about six years ago, is it six years? Yep. Oh my God. He started something that is even more profound than Opportunity Nation was profound, something called Upstream. And six years later, Upstream has had a profound impact, in my view, on many, many thousands, if not millions of people. And again, I'm going to ask him to explain exactly what Upstream does. So Mark, thank you for Thank you for joining us. Thrilled to see your shining face and thrilled to have you share what, you, what you've what you done with the audience. So thanks for having me, Chris. Absolutely. So can you just start with the, the well, let's start, you start with Opportunity Nation real quick and then, and then the, the migration or transition into, into Upstream and how that came to be. Share that. Sure. I'm actually going to start even a little bit further back Go if I it. can. Um, you know, I think as I as I was thinking about today's conversation, I started reflecting on my father, who, you know, grew up in Bed-Stuy in New York, long before it was a cool place to be, never knew his own dad. Mom died when he was 16. Essentially, he was orphaned. And, you know, I think we have a lot of data about how the children of people like that uh, end up. It's just a very hard situation. But as it turns out, you know, my dad ended up uh, sending three kids to Harvard. And I think that whole story of opportunity, of people who can, if creating or removing barriers so people can achieve their full potential, as corny as it is sort of the American dream, has always been a big part of my own DNA. And, you know, it's obviously, that, that topic is a complicated topic. It's filled with bias and structural issues. But I always felt compelled in some way to try to do something to just expand opportunity in this country. That's really been at the, at the core of the various endeavors that I've been involved with. And Opportunity Nation was born out of an experience I was having as, as a um, being a board member on several nonprofits here in Boston, each of which was having sort of the same conversation, you know, how to really move the needle on intergenerational poverty, you know, what can we do to get to scale? And so I thought, you know, could we possibly bring all these groups together and come up with a shared vision that we actually could move something forward in a collective way rather than the individual organization, mostly through federal policy. And, and it turned out to be a complicated idea to try to move bipartisan federal policy in the last, last administration, just a, a hard, hard environment to be working in. 
But we had about 300 non nonprofits that were working together, mostly in the workforce development area, trying to create stronger pathways between community college and employers. And it was through that experience of just talking to young people that the idea for Upstream was really, really born. I, I had never, quite frankly, thought about the issue of unplanned pregnancy in this country. You know, the entire narrative about opportunity and how we think about it begins after kids are born. That's how we think about it here in the U.S. We say this child is here. What do we do now to make sure this child achieves its full potential, which is obviously an enormously important conversation. But we don't include the notion of pregnancy planning in that conversation. And as, as many people don't know, you know, nearly half the pregnancies in this country are actually unplanned pregnancies. These data come from women themselves describing their own pregnancies. And most occur to women who are actually using birth control. They know this is not actually when they want to get pregnant, but the methods they're using are failing them. And there are now what are really considered best-in-class methods, the new IUDs and implants, that many women, particularly poor women, are not even offered. I mean, they literally are offered only the less effective methods, where particularly if you think about it along racial lines, their white counterparts are often offered the full range of methods. And so what we know is that when you can actually offer patients the full range of methods with really great patient-centered counseling to really give them methods that they actually want themselves, they find methods that work. It has a huge impact on unplanned pregnancy, abortion rates, and a whole set of other downstream outcomes. And so it was really born out of just hearing the voices of young people through Opportunity Nation, many of whom's story began with some version of, well, you know, I found myself pregnant and I had to drop out of school. Or I got my, my, got my girlfriend pregnant and I had to drop out. I kept hearing that story as we were working in workforce issues, which really got me interested in, in unplanned pregnancy. You know, it's profound. And I don't know if I ever told you this, but when I was running a managing director of the Harvard Innovation Labs, working with lots of startups on their innovation ideas, I often used Upstream. Did I ever tell you this? No. As an example of the importance of root cause identification that oftentimes startups innovators fail because they end up trying to innovate around a symptom not the root cause and i think for me one of the brilliances not that that's the appropriate language of upstream is the idea of of that recognition that opportunity was severely mitigated by an upstream root cause called unplanned pregnancy, right? I mean, that's that's the logic and not just the logic, that's that's in fact a fact that the, these people that you were talking to at, when you were at Opportunity Nations were basically saying, I couldn't get to where I wanted to get to because something happened accidentally, wasn't my intention. Like, okay, solve that, address that root cause, <laughs> you, you increase the chances of opportunity, right? Is that no, I think that's fair. I mean, obviously, you know, the issues of opportunity in this country are are complex and multidimensional. And, you know, want to be really clear about how there's no sort of silver bullet in this topic. But what we do know is that, you know, when, when women have babies before they plan to have them, it's just harder. It's just harder. And so it's just really, a, in my mind, in many ways, sort of an equity issue is that we just all, I mean, this is what I would want for my own daughters. I have three daughters. I want them to have children when they want to have children and not before. I mean, it's really right. as simple as that. And so it's... um. Right. And unlike so much of other things we do in social policy where, you know, I think essentially, and this may be unfair, but we, we go around shaking our fingers at people and saying, eat your broccoli, and it's just not, not working very well. We're not making the kind of progress on opportunity mobility that we should be in this country. This is something where we have such aligned interests where, you know, lo and behold, women actually want to plan their pregnancies. You know, you have better birth outcomes. It saves money. I mean, sort of just... There are all these aligned interests here, um, and we actually have the tools. We just don't have a healthcare system that is actually aligned to actually deliver 
what we intend to do. And so if you can just get those things aligned, all kinds of good, all kind of downstream uh, good things happen. And so that, that is at the core. That is uh, at the core. Um, uh, and unlike at Opportunity Nation, which depended so, success depended so much on getting 60 centers in Washington to do something, essentially the policy environment is essentially already supporting this. So the policy environment is saying that all women should get access to these methods. It's just the healthcare practice is not delivering. So if you can actually just change that practice, you see dramatic changes and much better outcomes in a very short period of time. So I, I want to go back at some point to the your statement that when you were running Opportunity Nation, you know, the environment was not conducive to bipartisan policy development. And obviously for anybody listening today, I, I think you've got to be like scratching your head going, if it wasn't good back then, <laughs> like how good is it now? We'll come back to that. I'd rather, I'd love for you to explain what it is you actually do to, to the point you just made, but also what it is you do compared with what it was you thought you were going to do six years ago. Like what is, what is your learning been about how to help, you know, move this or, yeah. or is what you're doing today pretty, pretty much what you, what you, you, you sort of envisioned, you know, in whatever year that was, 2014, 2015. Yeah, yeah. No, it's actually really quite different. So briefly, what we actually do is that we essentially provide training and technical assistance to health centers of all kinds. These can be community health centers, Planned Parenthood, hospitals, adolescent health centers, any place that women get their care, their primary care. And we do essentially two things. First is we ensure that at the center of the primary care visit, women are asked a question, do you plan to get pregnant the next year? as a standard screening question. So you get asked about smoking, about much things. You also get asked, do you plan to get pregnant the next year? And if the answer is, no, I actually don't, that in that visit, you should be able to then get great patient-centered counseling about contraception, and you should be able to leave that visit with any method of birth control. So in some sense, it's really quite simple. It's simply saying, in a regular visit, you get asked the question, if, you, you wanna, you know, if you're a woman of reproductive age, this should be a standard question. Do you plan to get pregnant the next year? And then also to make sure then that you can leave with any method you want. That contrasts with what actually happens today in health centers broadly, which is that, first of all, they never ask that question. So people feel like they go to a specialty care for that. And even if they are asked, they're only offered the less effective methods, pills, patches, and rings, but they often are not offered the most effective methods. Those often take three or four visits. So a woman is given this false choice. I can get the pill right now, which has an annual failure rate of about nine or 10%. And over the, over the period of a long time, you know, the Brookings Institution, a quick digression, Brookings did a study where they looked at the typical use failure rate of the pill over 10 years. And your chances of getting pregnant if you're on the pill and a typical user, not a perfect user, but a typical user is about 61%. Good God. So that, that's the state of play. The typical use failure rate for one of these more effective methods is less than 1%. This is just modern birth control. These are the methods that are used most often by OBGYNs for their own birth control. These methods are not made available. And so- Is that a all, function of a lack of knowledge or no, a lack really of- The fact that it's, it's, people don't often stick with their method. You know, they don't, they don't, they're not, it's a compliance issue more than anything. And so these methods are lower doses of hormones. Women prefer these methods, they're safer. You return to fertility faster. IVs and implants are just considered sort of the most effective methods for, for all women, including all adolescents. But the most my, important, my yes. question was on the practitioner side. Yes. So why so would what they we do? We, so we, we train health centers so they can offer these methods in a single visit. Uh -huh. And that means making sure that providers are trained to place and remove all the methods. They can counsel really well in a patient-centered way. They can bill and code properly so they get reimbursed. 
They have good patient education materials. Their staff is trained to be able to do that in one visit. That's, that, that's at the core of the work that we do. And so rather than taking three or four visits of getting scheduled and rescheduled and getting fitted and coming back, they can all do it in one visit. And when you do that, you tend to see a big shift in the methods that women want and prefer and leave with, which has a remarkable impact on unplanned pregnancy. So what, was, what has been the hardest part of, of getting to that level of delivery? Like, yeah. like the same day, I imagine, not easy. Maybe. Well, it, it's, it's the hardest part is, I think there are two things. One is that you have to convince large systems, healthcare systems, that reproductive healthcare should be at the center of primary care. And so just literally getting that, but if you're a sexually active woman, a reproductive age, this should be part of your regular primary care. I mean, that's sort of the way we, 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 we think about it. And it's also what's considered best in class care. So just getting the mindset about that is one of the most, the hardest things. And the second hardest thing is then implementing that because it does require the entire healthcare system, healthcare center to do better work. It means the person who answers the phone needs to know about how to do scheduling. It means, it means that the people who are billing and coding have to be able to work with electronic health records, right? So they can get reimbursed properly. It means that you've got to be able to stock all the methods. So you don't have to then say, oh, you want one of those methods? We'll order it for you, come back next Tuesday. The data show that people don't come back next Tuesday and too often they come back pregnant. So it's sort of all, it's every aspect of the healthcare, every touch point needs to be aligned for the single visit access. And so that, that it, is in, it is really practice change that we get involved in. Was there a precedent in the health, let's keep, call out healthcare clinics. Was there, is there, was, was yours like a, pre, a new precedent for advising? Like, is there, a, is there an industry of organizations that advise healthcare care clinics on best practice? Like, you know what I'm asking? Yeah, I do understand what you're asking. Yes. And the short answer is that in many other aspects of, of healthcare, there is an industry in contraceptive care. There really isn't, believe it or not. It's a little bit of the wild west. And there are some places that are doing a great job, other places are doing a lousy job. And so, and unfortunately today, and I talk about this internally a lot, we are really the only organization providing this kind of service at scale in the U.S. There aren't score. I wish there were scores of other upstreams out there doing this work to help train providers on providing best-in-class care, but there really are not. There are not. Just out of curiosity, like, is there a cultural underpinning to that? Like sexual whatever is, is, is put in the, in the corner? Like any, I mean, obviously there's no absolute answer to that, but why that might be or. I, you know, I've often wondered about that, Chris. I think that, um, I, I think there, one reason is that you know, women's healthcare, unfortunately, has always been the poor stepchild in healthcare. It has not been a focus of research. It's not been a focus of practice. And so broadly, I think women's healthcare just does not get the kind of attention that men's healthcare does. And then secondly, I think this reproductive healthcare has become so politicized. It, is, it has been sort of sequestered to sort of a specialty as opposed to really being at the center of primary care. And I, I think the reasons for that are probably myriad, but I think our view is that this is one of the things that should be at the center of primary care. Um, and, and that's where, how best-in-class care takes place. A little about um, your, your progress. Like, where, where did you start? Do you, is this a, and did you, do you look at this through a federal lens, a state lens? Like, how did you get going? So from the beginning, we've always had this aspiration to really have national impact. I mean, from the beginning, our North Star was, this is actually something that could change in a, in a, in a reasonable period of time as opposed to saying, let's just do this in one place and just sort of hope that it happens on its own. So we've always had this sort of the national ambition. We started really by just, what, what really inspired this in many ways was a, um, an academic study uh, done out of Wash U in St. Louis, where they basically built a health center from scratch 
and offered best-in-class contraceptive care. And what they saw was that for those patients, they had a remarkable impact on unplanned pregnancy. That, got, that study got some visibility. Other health centers called the university and said, this is amazing. Train us to do this because these outcomes are great. And they said, no, we're academics. We're not doing that. The study shut down. They gave us that list of early, of early adopters, people who were sort of saying, I really, I've raised my hand. I want to do part of this. And those were our first clients, those health centers oh, who said, I want to do what they did at this health center by offering best-in-class care and getting those outcomes. We then went to the governor of Delaware, whom I knew from my days at Opportunity Nation, a really entrepreneurial governor, Governor Markell, who it turns out Delaware had one of the highest rates of unplanned pregnancy in the country. Who knew? Again, this is just not a topic that people were thinking about. He didn't know about it. In Delaware, 57% of pregnancies were unplanned when we started. Their own data, 57%. And he said, look, you know, this this is an issue that we can do something about. Let's develop a statewide plan to really make sure that we close these inequities and make sure that women can get the birth control they want. And so that's, that really kicked off sort of the accelerated growth that we've been in. And now we're in five states doing this work really across the entire healthcare system, serving on our path to serving more than a million women each year. Congratulations. Wow. That is a number. Well, is- what, what is super exciting about it is that when you make these changes in health centers, so it becomes embedded in their practice, they then can do that on their own. Right. So it's a sort of a one-time intervention, deep across the entire system, but then you're done. And it's built into systems, it's built into practice. So in Delaware, where we had most of the organization for three years, we now have nobody anymore. The work is done. So they are just continuing the work. We continue to get data. They're providing great care. I think they have the best contraceptive care in the nation right now. Is that right? Yes, I do. I do. And I mean, across the entire state of Delaware now, no matter where you get healthcare, you get asked the question, do you plan to get pregnant the next year? It is a standard screening question. And you can leave with any method of birth. Whether you're in a hospital, a health clinic. Anywhere, anywhere, anywhere. anywhere. It's just a standard screening question. And if the answer is no, I don't, you can get, you will get great patient-centered counseling right there and leave with the method that you want in that visit. Not come back next week, in that visit. And wow. it's had a remarkable impact across the state in a short amount of time. What was the, what was the, how long were you there? Like, what was the... So we were, there for about, we were there for about a total of five years. And in the first three years, you know, we've had a, a bunch of data that's come out and some of it's been um, published. I mean, just a couple highlights. Unplanned births in Delaware dropped 25% in three years. So that, that is a remarkable Stunning. shift in just three years. Abortion dropped 37% in three years. It is the largest drop of, of any state in the country. And at the same time, abortion access actually increased. So you see abortion dropping in some states because they're closing a bunch of clinics. In Delaware, there actually were more clinics in 2017 than there were in 2014. But the, but the abortion rate went down 37%. So again, a huge reduction, all because women in Delaware have access to the methods they want and they're using them. I mean, it, it's really quite straightforward. And so I think it's a, uh, and finally, we, we, there's been an independent evaluation of the work in Delaware that shows that much of this is really due to upstream. They, they had a control group and looked at, they were able to say with statistical significance, the upstream had causal impact in, in, in Delaware. So it's an exciting, amazing. exciting to see those kind of outcomes. But again, we're now at a place now where our work in Delaware is done. So we've really have shifted people to the other states where we're doing a similar kind of work. So do you have people on the ground, literally in Delaware or whatever? Uh, the, the, what are the other states? The other... So we're now doing similar projects in Massachusetts and Washington, in North Carolina and Rhode Island. And are they all following sort of that same path, path or pattern that Delaware did? Or are they, they, they are. Different? They basically are. I mean, we've learned a lot about how to do this work at scale. And so the way we deliver it has changed a lot. And of course, with COVID, 
there have been a number of changes that we've had to make. But the basic construct is still the same, is that across the system, patients should be able to ask this method, ask, ask this question about their pregnancy intention, and they should be able to leave with any method. And you have to organize the healthcare system to be able to do that at scale. And all those projects also have end dates like Delaware does. Um, so we're not going to be there forever at all. I mean, I, I, I would think, do you have a waiting list of states? Like, <laughs> we, we do have a, I mean, as there's been some press about Delaware. And so we do have a number of states that have actually called and are, are really interested in. It's, it's a big commitment because these are, I mean, think about it, These are often five to seven year projects, many people on the ground. I mean, you're, think about, I mean, here in, in Massachusetts where we're working, I mean, we're working with partners healthcare. I mean, just think about the scale of, of trying to change the system within that organization. So these are big projects, they're expensive projects, but yes, so we do have a number of states that are really interested. Yeah, I can't even fathom the, the, the levels or layers of, dare I say, bureaucracy and legacy. I, I, you know, God love you and your team for being able to, I mean, even if there's desire on the part of the state, you know, there are tens of thousands of people that are part of a machine that you have to convince to change their perspective and ultimately change their policy, right? Like getting that one question asked 100% of the time in a state, good yeah. God. Yeah, no, it, it's uh, the good news is that I think the, the outcomes are so positive. Right. The data are so compelling. And, this, and, and every health center on the planet wants to deliver best-in-class care for their patients. I mean, our very first health center was a health center in Amarillo, Texas. This was literally, you know, the number one, the, the tiny little health center. I, th I remember you telling me about this, a stand, an, uh, an outlier, like it wasn't the state of Texas, just this one no, little, right, just right, right. Single, a single health center. And you know, people say, Texas, how can you do this work in Texas? I mean, the medical director in the health center is no different from the medical director in Massachusetts or any place else. She just wants to deliver best in class care for her patients. Right. And so we were able to work with them and today, now, six years later, she's still delivering great care. We still get data from her. And, you know, she is the, has the, operates the only health center within a 400-mile radius on the, in the panhandle of, of uh, Texas that is delivering great contraceptive care. And so... 400 miles. Yeah. So she's got to be able to do it in a single visit. She can't ask people to come back two or three times for great care. So it's exciting to see. And, and, and because this is really considered, you know, again, evidence-based, great outcomes, uh, there's, there's tremendous interest. The question is, do they have the will to really make the changes that are necessary? So when you look at the rest of the country, I mean, my, my point about the waiting list, you know, again, I guess I'm just sort of scratching my head. Why, why, why wouldn't you have all 45 other states <laughs> plus the District of Columbia and maybe Puerto Rico, you know, and Guam, like, I, I, like why not people like come on you know but i guess there are other priorities other other challenges they have that take you know i i think that's right i think that's right it's a um you know right now i mean just in 2021 here i mean state budgets are just a it's decimated i mean right. there are a bunch of other things that are on the list I, I do think this is um we're already beginning to see how this is going to this this will continue to catch on and so i, I you know because again the I think the story today is so much better than the story was three years ago because of the data that we have about outcomes. And I think the data from Delaware will only get better, which is which is exciting. Well, you know, and on the topic of outcomes, as as you know, Kate, my wife is is runs a nonprofit, and and in the nonprofit space, pre-COVID, the the funders want to know about outcomes. Like, and I think in a lot of cases in the nonprofit space, it's hard to get to outcomes. You know, even if you've got great programs, great services, whatever, you can't 
absolutely prove cause and effect, return on investment, whatever you want to call it. And so, you know, I think part of, as you were saying, part of what you have is is absolute data, like pre and post. I think one of the uh, the best compliments I ever received was someone who said to me once, it feels like Upstream is maniacal about data. We are uh, just incredibly focused on, you know, we have a huge investments in data systems to gather information in real time about how our work is going. We use those to create feedback loops with our health centers to sort of say, you know, here's what's happening. Here's where the opportunities are to improve. It is just, it is a completely data-driven operation. And and that's also, again, a really refreshing for me personally, just a refreshing change from uh, an organization and opportunity nation where it just, we had no idea how to measure what we were doing, if we could measure it. Yeah, um, is it, yeah, is this, it even measurable, right? Yeah, this yeah. is really quite, quite measurable. Did you know going into to um, upstream that it was data, it was all going to be all about data, or is that something you sort of arrived at? Definitely just arrived at. It's, you know, I, I had no idea, first of all, how complicated healthcare data is, and not just because of HIPAA and, and privacy and all that, but just everyone has different data systems. How do you get them to compare them? You know, it, it, it is a, we've learned firsthand what a broken system healthcare is. But I think the good news is that at the end of the day, the health system itself also wants to deliver best in class care. And we're not, we don't have to convince people to do that. They just need help in figuring out how to do that. And that, that that's the, the sort of the, the narrow place that we operate. We're not an advocacy organization trying to change laws. I mean, though there are some regulations and policies that actually can be changed and we've had some real success in doing that, but that's not the core of it. We're really focused on healthcare practice transformation. And when you do that in a true systems way, not just by changing a couple hearts and minds, but literally everybody from the front desk staff to the chief medical officer, it gets embedded in culture New right. people get trained on that, right. and it just becomes a real virtuous circle. It becomes the way that doesn't require your staff being there to make it happen. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so I mean, you know, at Delaware, at one point, we had 25 people on the ground. We have nobody there anymore. Nobody there. It's just the work. But we're still gathering data from the healthcare systems, but we can, so we know the work is still doing well. But it's, it's just not, it's not about reminding people and retraining people. It's just built into practice. I mean, it's interesting to contemplate that that the model of upstream, not through the reproductive lens, but through the sort of just service delivery lens, the use of data, the presence on the ground, the constant reinforcement. It's not a quick hit. It's a multi-year commitment to consider that model applied to other areas of need, problem, operate, whatever you want to, you know, like... Because so I think so much effort is spent to try to solve certain issues in society, but it doesn't quite get there. It certainly doesn't get to those absolute outcomes. So just an observation. So I asked, I have to ask the, the COVID question, you know, I mean, every, every, everybody in, in on this planet has been impacted, challenged by what the pandemic has brought. How has it impacted your work? Yeah, significantly. It's, um, you know, as you say, everybody's impacted by COVID, but we're obviously working in a marketplace that is ground zero for COVID. We're working with health centers themselves. And so most more specifically, you know, we have not been able to go into health centers to do the work. So of course we've had to change to, a, I mean, what we had was a, a high touch, high intensity on the ground model has now become entirely virtual. The good news is that some of the early data about outcomes from the virtual, at least the training part of our work have actually been pretty comparable. And so- right. You know, that's a big learning. I mean, we just assumed the secret sauce was, you know, five people on the ground. You know, we have a we have a training which is unparalleled. I mean, literally people dancing and singing. It's a whole day of engagement. And 
the virtual training, the, the scores have been remarkably similar. So there's some big lessons for us in this, which will carry on long after COVID. But more than anything, you know, health centers are just swamped. And in this environment, prioritizing contraceptive care is just a, it's a much, much harder lift. So it's been hard. It's been hard. But I, if anything, we've used this time to really try to innovate in ways that not just will serve us during COVID, but actually long afterward as well. And, and the, the early outcomes are really exciting. Well, that's, I think that's the sort of maybe the nicer part of the question is, is, and I've talked to a fair number of people about this idea of, you know, in adversity, we find clarity or we see things differently and when seeing things differently, we can innovate differently. Like as you think about the next generation of, of upstream post-COVID, which hopefully will be months away, not years away, what, what are you envisioning a more hybrid delivery model? You know, how are you thinking about the future of, of, the, of the organization? Well, we, we, we're in the midst of a, a planning process to answer exactly that question. I can tell you a couple of things. One is, you know, we're relentlessly focused on mission. Uh, we have a singular mission. Uh, we want to stay focused on that. We want to increase and accelerate the scale with which we can actually deliver that mission. And COVID has taught us some ways in which we can do that. We're also looking beyond our current model to find out there are other ways that we can essentially reach patients even outside of healthcare systems that can actually accelerate the work. So we're pretty open to that. And we're, we're in the midst of a project looking at that right now. But I think, I think at the end of the day, what we want to do is to have a vision about having a dramatic reduction in unplanned pregnancy in this country and really working towards that. How is your, uh, how is all this, this six year journey and now the COVID thing and now looking to the future, how, this is kind of a hard question, I think. How has it changed you, your role as a leader? Like if you, just, I mean, I've known you for, I don't know, 15 years. Like how has this impacted you as a human being? I mean, this is insert human after all, we have to get to that. <laughs> Hope you were going to ask me that, that, that tough question. So I think in a lot of ways, and I would add to the list of things you just mentioned, you know, the brutal murder, murder of George Floyd and all that's happened this year as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, uh, obviously being a, uh, a huge factor as well. I think, I think it's, it's, it's changed me in a bunch of ways. First of all, it's, it, this whole period has really made me even, I mean, much more humble about what, what, we, what we can do. I mean, I, I, I've, um, the, the, I, I understand the, the gap between aspiration and implementation. I think I've always had a sense about that, but I mean, being in the thick of it is, it just been, I've come up, come up against that gap. I think I've spent a lot more time in 2020 and I will be forever thinking about equity, thinking about diversity and inclusion in ways that quite frankly have been sort of secondary. Uh, they're not really primary. It's forced me to, I'd say, I think forced is really the right verb. I mean, I've been forced to speak much more sort of publicly and vulnerably about, you know, my own personal journey, how race affects me as a leader, as an individual. Companies today, I think, are appropriately expected to be quite vocal on these issues. And historically, I, I just have not led with those topics. And so that, that's been a big shift for me personally. And I know, you know, I also recognize that, you know, running, we're now 200 people, you know, as an organization, you know, I mean, our, I mean, our, our budget four years ago was probably a million and a half budget, million and a half dollars a year. Our budget this year is $50 million. I mean, we've just grown astronomically. You know, it, it's, it's running an organization of this scale is a different task than starting something with a couple right. of people. So plus, I think, if I can add to that, it's distributed. It's not like you're going to an office building, right? Like everybody's all over the place, right? Yes, 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 absolutely. And so, so I think, I, I, you know, the short answer to your question, I think, is that I'm spending 
much more time on culture and values than I have before. And I think it's the most important time I can spend. And that, that I was not aware of when we started. I was not aware of the need for that and the importance of that. I think I may have paid lip service to it, but, and I'm saying culture with a capital C, I mean, just the entire way in which we behave and operate as an organization. And it's, it's enormously important. I have a lot of learning to do. I've made a ton of mistakes. So, but, but, that, but that's, that, that's been the big, the big, the big shift. I mean, it's, you know, you know, the culture thing, it's like the biggest, I mean, you know, I believe this, it's the biggest thing and arguably it's also the most complicated thing because it's chock full of intangibles and, and, and it's an outcome, you know, it's not, it's not a means, it's an end. And so then you have to, well, what are the means? Well, the means are everything you do, everything you say, everything you, you know, like, oh. and I think for a lot of people, a lot of organizations, it's, it's almost, it's so overwhelming. They just, they, they shunt it over to the HR corner to, you know, make sure we check that box, but in doing so, they ultimately, I think, hurt, hurt their organization. The other thing that you said that sort of triggers for me is it sounds like a bit of this is also about your own culture, like coming, getting a little more in touch with your own values, but, you know, and that's, that's been true for me too, around the George Floyd situation. And I, I think the benefit of COVID, if there is one, is, is that for some of us, a level of connection to within that maybe we didn't have before you know i absolutely chris i mean my you know i'm lucky enough that my youngest daughter is um has been living with us since april and we have had more sort of deep and quite frankly challenging conversations about race in the 10 months between april and now or the nine months whatever it is than we have in the previous 25 years i mean it is um these conversations are long overdue, but we have somehow just not made the space for them. And now we really have. And so it's been, um, I mean, it's a real opportunity in that. I think, you know, initially, I think my instinct was just to sort of run away from it, but that just it was no longer an option. And so it's here. And so I'm really trying to learn, trying to listen, and just trying to really be present. But as you say, it's hard to do that when we're all working out of our bedrooms, staring at our computers every day. That's just not the way in which I both feed or be or be, get fed i just it just so much of this i want to be able to you know sit over a cup of coffee to look somebody right. in the eye so that's that's the way in which this stuff at least for me is, is communicated and it's um so that's hard that's hard but it's just but there's no option we have to do it now we can't sort of put it off to the time we can get back together again yeah i, I totally agree and i suppose you, you we were talking earlier about the struggle of this two-dimensional zoom world you know and and just desperately wanting to hug you you know like <laughs> or anybody for that matter and but the other side of it sort of going back to the work of upstream your work as a leader your work as a human i think the there's something in all of that which is about intimacy you know meeting people where they are helping them where they are helping yourself where you are right like and again, I think one of the benefits of COVID is sort of recognizing that the prior world in certain aspects was a was a was missing a dimension of real connection. And so now, ironically, with the Zoom thing, we actually have the capacity maybe to better connect and to better meet people where they are and help people where they are. I, uh, I and Chris, just building on that, I think, you know, I mean, here we are talking about insert human here. You know, what we've also come to see is that is the fundamental lack of humanity in, in healthcare for many patients. You know, you're well aware of the very long and ugly history of reproductive coercion in this country. I mean, literally people being sterilized without their consent, mostly black and brown, 
And, you know, in many ways, what we're trying to do is to sort of rebuild the, hu- the humanity in healthcare, particularly for marginalized, vulnerable populations. Um, to When I talk about patient-centered counseling, it's, it's really about counseling at its heart, which identifies what the patient wants herself. It's not about me telling them what, the, it's, it's about what the patient actually wants and listening. And so that's, it is about inserting human into the healthcare experience on a dimension that's enormously important. Well, Pregnancy yeah. planning is enormously important. And so if we can if we can do that, the outcomes will just be so much more positive. Well, I, th- I mean, I love that expression. And, and as you know, I, I believe that the capacity or opportunity to insert human understanding into every f- part of society, you know, pick a pick a topic, pick an area, <laughs> education, you know, like it doesn't matter. Immigration, you know, like if we could just find our way to do that, to get closer to the truth and to accommodating the truth of others, I, I well, look at the outcome, like, yeah. like, you know, and, and I guess I want to, I want to go back to the bipartisan policy. Thing. Okay. <laughs> okay. So you were five years at Opportunity Nation, banging your head against the wall and six years upstream making solid progress is there hope for <laughs> i'm not sure i'm qualified to answer that question oh, come I, on. I think as, as entrepreneurs i think we all have to be we we just have either the blessing or the curse of being fundamental optimists right. i mean i think it's just the nature of it's hard to be an entrepreneur and, and not have that sort of coursing through your veins and so yeah, I actually do think there's hope. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking out of catastrophe. I think there can be hope and better things. And so I, I choose to look at the world that way. But there have been some very dark times. Yeah, yeah. And I'm with you. And I layer onto what you've learned from upstream, which is data matters. Like, even though we sort of appear to live in a world where data is refuted or ignored, I, I do believe ultimately the majority of humans come around to appreciating you know, absolute fact, absolute, you know, figures. And so, you know, can we find our way through the woods with a combination of compassion and quantitative evidence? And I got to believe we can. I have to believe we can. Well, Mark, thank you from behalf of the world and the United States particularly. By the way, is there global interest? Have you seen, have you any, any? We are, we are firmly and positively focused on the United States. Okay, well, you have plenty of work to do there, so that's, that's good. But on behalf of the citizens of America, thank you. And all the people, the million people that, whose lives you've impacted, thank you from the bottom of, of our heart, my heart. And I just so respect you for the work you're doing and you as a human being. And I'm grateful you were able to find an hour to spend with us today. Truly. Well, thank you, Chris. I feel incredibly lucky to have stumbled onto something that I believe so deeply in, and we've been able to really give it our very best. And so this is um, it's, it's a tremendous opportunity and, and, and privilege to, be able to work on this stuff. And thank you for uh, thank you for today. All right. We'll talk to you soon. I love you, man. Yep. Bye. Thanks for listening today. If you're in search of more opportunities to realize positive change in your life or work, and you find what I have to say helpful, You can always subscribe to my show, check out one of my new salons that are weekly virtual gatherings of like-minded folks. You can read some of my writings or just listen to one of the talks that I've given around the world over the last couple of years. And you can do it all at chriscolbert.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for my ongoing email updates. When you do, you'll receive a free copy of the first chapter of my about-to-be-published book, Technology is Dead. Again, it's all available at chriscolbert.com.
Thanks again for listening today. And I look forward to connecting more in the days ahead.